Well, if you have your Bible apps or your Bibles, go with me to Mark 16, the last chapter of our journey through Mark, discovering the Son of Man. It was 1999. I was a little over 16 years old. It was my first car. A 1989 blue Chevy Beretta that's moonroof was caulked shut because it was leaking. The fabric on the ceiling had pins in it because otherwise it would sag to where you couldn't see out the rear view window. It had a tape deck, but I don't think they were making cassettes any longer. It was just, there was a, there was a giant... There was a giant gash on the dash where it looked like somebody had just taken a knife in a fit of road rage and just stabbed the dash. And so there was just this hole in it. But that was my first car, and it, it was just fantastic until one morning in November of 1999. They were doing some work on Maslin Road, and right, right by the interstate, right by the entrance ramp to 77, there is a light. And Maslin Road was down to one lane headed in each direction. And at that red light, I was the first car. And all of a sudden, just sitting there at the red light, it happened. The car just died. The radio was still on. The light still worked. But the engine just shut off. That's interesting. And, and so I, I, I hit the brake and I tried to start the engine back. Nothing. And so I just stuck my flashers on and waited. Because I really wasn't really sure of what to do. The light turned green. The lady behind me honked. I just threw up my hands. She honked again. I turned around and started lipping. I'm sorry, it won't move. She flicked me off, which really helped the situation. And I just was like, there's, no, there's nothing I can do. And the light turned red again. And I looked in the mirror, and the traffic just started backing up. And I tried to start the engine, and nothing. And the light turned green. More honking, more finger gestures. Still not helping the car start. And the light turned red, and it turned green, and it turned red. It must have been four or five times. And I was going through a country music phase at the time and listening to 94.9 WQMX, which took a break every 10 minutes to give you traffic and weather updates, at which point I heard, there's a delay on Maslin Road in green, cutting off traffic on Interstate 77. Not sure what's going on there, but there is a delay. I didn't have a cell phone at the time where I would have called him and said, I know real well what's going on <laughs> on Maslin Road in green. <laughs> My car was dead, and it wouldn't start. Through much prayer, the laying on of hands on the dash, not always peacefully, but at first in a rage, and then at just a brokenness, much prayer and supplication, promising God I'd go serve him in Africa if he would just get this car to start. The car started, and I drove it to school. And I called my dad, and I'm like, we've got a problem. And he's like, well, what's the problem? And I'm like, the car just stopped. He's like, well, do you have your foot on the brake? I'm like, not like that, Dad. 
I know I'm not always the smartest guy, but I'm not that dumb. It just stopped. So we took it into the shop. A couple hundred dollars later, I'm like, yeah, we, we've got it fixed. And for a couple weeks, they did. And then one Sunday morning, on the way home from church, as I was driving along, driving along, the car just died in the middle of the road. Luckily, I was only a couple houses from home. But it was it. It was over. The 89 Chevy Beretta would soon find itself where pretty much every Beretta ever made has found itself. <laughs> in the junkyard. Because it was dead. That is the first time in my life I can really remember being caught in a situation where I couldn't work myself out of it. I couldn't either talk my way out of it. I couldn't negotiate my way out of it. I couldn't cheat off somebody's test my way out of the test. That was the first time in my life where I really felt this sense of hopelessness. No matter what I wanted to do, this was it. The car was dead. We tried the fixing route. That didn't work. This was over. You ever find yourself there in a hopeless place? If you're lucky, you might find love there. But for most of us, when we're in a hopeless place, it's just a feeling of just a feeling of just utter defeat. Maybe it's a medical diagnosis. And at first you're like, oh, there's got to be something, but there's not. Just give in. There's, there's nothing you can do. Maybe it's you watch, watch a kid and, and, and you just see the choices that they're making and you've tried your best and you no longer have the ability to speak in, into their life to the point they'll listen. Maybe it's your company's downsizing and the pension you thought was just so secure is gone. And maybe it's the loss of somebody you care so deeply about. Maybe a friend. Maybe a parent. Maybe a child. Oh, a parent should never have to bury their own baby. You just get to that point where you realize there's nothing you can do. There's nothing that can be done. And this morning as we look at Mark chapter 16, we're going to see a group of women who are there. Because Jesus, who had spoken into their lives, who had performed miracles in their lives, who had accepted them, is dead. It's all over. They watched him crucified they saw him take his last breath their hope is dead when the sabbath was passed mary magdalene mary the mother of james and salome 
brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us? From the entrance of the tomb. The Sabbath was over. The Sabbath is Saturday. Jewish people judge their time not from midnight like we do, but from 6 p.m. sundown. So the Sabbath officially ended sundown of Saturday night. And here they were very early in the morning, on, on Sunday morning. Mark shares with us three women. These women had followed and ministered to Jesus. We know that designation from Mark, uh, Mark chapter 15, verse 41. They had ministered to Jesus. They had been important in the life of Jesus. They had been a source of encouragement to him in the course of his ministry. There's Mary Magdalene, healed of seven demons. Luke 8, 2 tells us that. Healed of seven demons. Seven demons within her that Jesus casts out. All the looks of people as they looked at her, all the judgments that she had to deal with, all the rumors and speculation, all the innuendo. And then she meets Jesus, and he looks at her, a broken, possessed woman, and he casts out of her seven demons. He gives her a new lease on life. He gives Mary a new start. And I can't prove it. I don't know. But if I'm Mary, every step to that tomb is so bittersweet. I can't believe he's gone. But I'm so thankful for what he did for me. Mary, the mother of James. And Salome, who most likely, and, and we don't know for sure, but who most likely was the mother of James and John, the, the sons of Zebedee, the, the closest of closest disciples of Jesus. We, we judge that off of Matthew 27, 56. And so here are these women. And they've seen Jesus is dead. And they carry with them spices with the purpose to anoint the body of Jesus. You see, Jewish people didn't embalm their dead. E Egyptians e embalmed their dead, but Jewish people did not embalm their dead. So the purpose of the spices was to anoint the body, to mask the decaying smell of flesh. Each step of the way. Now, what does this tell us? What does this tell us? Well, the only reason they would have spices with them, the only reason they would be heading to the tomb is because they think that Jesus is dead and there's no anticipation of any other outcome. He's gone. His body's in the tomb. His flesh is rotting. So they're carrying along spices to anoint him. 
And as they're on their way, only then in their grief does it dawn on them, how are we going to get in? They place that giant boulder in front of the tomb of Jesus to prevent people from messing with his body. How are we going to get in? You ever been there? Either in grief or just pure excitement for something, you are all in. You're all in, you're all on board, and while you're driving to whatever it is you're about to do, you look at somebody and you have that aha moment like, what are we going to do when we get there? We've got the spices. We're going to anoint his body. But how are we going to get to the body? Dawns on them all of a sudden. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. That might be the largest understatement in all of Scripture. Put yourself in these women's shoes. You've seen him die. You've got spices to anoint his body. You're like, how are we going to get in? I don't know, but let's just go. You get there, the, the stone has been rolled back. You have entrance into the tomb. You get into the tomb, and you see a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. What is going on? What is happening? They are freaking out, and you would be too. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. Easier for him to say. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. This, this is the climax. This is the climax of Jesus' ministry. This is the climax of all of history. This is not the epilogue to Jesus' life. This is the purpose. This is where salvation comes into play. Without this moment, all that we looked at last week, Jesus on a cross, listen to me. Without this moment, all that we've looked at over the course of these last four months, all of the teachings of Jesus, they mean nothing without this moment. Without this moment, Jesus died in vain. Without this moment, Jesus' teaching means nothing, and you might as well live your life however you want to live your life. You might as well do whatever you want to do. You're like, Brian, that's some, those are some pretty extreme statements. Well, don't be angry at me. Those are the Apostle Paul's statements in 1 Corinthians 15. When he says, our preaching 
is worthless. And if you only look at Jesus to follow the precepts of his teaching, then you should be pitied above all men. Because there's more to the mission of Jesus. And here it is. Salvation. They said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. This changes everything. So here's the evidence. The tomb is empty. Jesus isn't here. The tomb is empty. Jesus isn't here. See it for yourself. Now go. Tell the disciples and Peter. You think you've messed up? Think maybe there's some things in your life you've done that bring God some dishonor. Some choices, even some addictions, some struggles, past. Some mistakes you made years ago that still haunt you. Some mistakes you made yesterday that will haunt you for years to come. Think you've messed up. Here's the good news for you. God still loves you. God still loves you. Peter. A couple days earlier, out of fear, three times emphatically denied even knowing Jesus. Just as Jesus told him he would. And Peter had the best of intentions because when Jesus told him this would happen, he said, Not I, Lord. It won't be me. Remember, I'm the, I'm the rock. It's not going to be this guy. And Jesus says, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Oh, you want a picture of grace? Three times, Peter denies Jesus. A few days later, the message is, you go tell those disciples, and you go tell Peter. God's not done with him. You go tell Peter what happened. God hasn't written him off. And I want you to know, I don't know what you've done in your life. I don't know all the mistakes you've made. I don't know all the struggles that you have. But I do know this, God has not written you off. There is hope. 
That's 2,000 years ago. It's a tomb where a man who was once crucified laid. But who was alive. Why? Because he was no ordinary man. It was Jesus. He was fully God and fully man. Divinity meets humanity. And he wins. And this is the picture of his victory. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone. For they were afraid. All of the natural response of what they just seen. I love how honest scripture is. And Mark wasn't like, and immediately they with full joy ran out and proclaimed to the masses. It's like they were so scared they didn't say anything. Trembling and fear at what they had just seen. A natural response. Because Jesus is one. And he's alive. And now there's this part of Mark 16 that's always bothered me. Your Bible probably has a notation in it unless you're utilizing a King James version or, or a New King James and here's what my Bible says. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include Mark 16, 9 through 20. Wait, what? Why, why is this important? Why, why are we talking about this? Well, what's troubling is that the chapter which reports the resurrection immediately following Mark's account of the resurrection then has this disclaimer. Some of the earliest manuscripts don't include Mark 16, 9 through 20. Wait a minute. If the resurrection's the hinge point of our entire relationship with God, of our entire existence, in one of the accounts that's passed down to us, then has this disclaimer immediately after it, can we trust this account? The stakes are too high. Can we trust this? Again, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that if there is no resurrection, our faith is worthless. We have this question that we need to deal with. So how do we resolve this issue? Now, some of this might sound a little scientific, and, and some of this might, might sound somewhat boring. But I want to encourage you, and I want to challenge you. Stick with me. Why? Because I am convinced that the Bible we have is true. 
And I want to help you understand that, then we're, that when we come to these challenges, that there will be skeptics who look at it and who want to discredit all of Scripture. And I want to help you understand why we with certainty each and every week when you come to Mission View, open up God's Word. Because we are absolutely convinced that God's Word is true. We are absolutely convinced that this book holds the key to a relationship with God. To the, to the news of how we can have that relationship. Now understand this. Every English Bible that you have is a translation. Every single one. The Bible was originally written in Hebrew, the Old Testament, written predominantly in Hebrew, some short sections in Aramaic, and the New Testament is in Greek. Well, the vast majority of us do not know Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek, so unless you do and you're great with it and you might be using an interlinear, unless you know that, you are reading a translation of the original writings of Scripture in our English Bibles. Now, like I said, the Holy Spirit inspired all of the authors of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us this. It says, all Scripture is God-breathed. God, through his, through his Holy Spirit, inspired the original writers of the Bible. So what we read is literally the Word of God. New Testament authors especially recorded that inspiration, and then they sent their letters to churches. They sent their letters from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they sent their writings to churches. Now understand this. This is all in the first century. The printing press didn't even come about. It wasn't really active until 1475, and it didn't become popular until 1500. I mean, we take for granted now, we don't even have to buy a Bible anymore. It's, it's incredible. If you have a smartphone, you just, you just pull up, you go to the app store, you type in Bible, and you can download virtually every version of Scripture for free. It's, it's an incredible tool. If you don't have a smartphone, you can get on your internet, and, and, and you, can just, you can go to multiple sites, which have so many just translations of Scripture available to us. It's incredible. So we take all of this for granted. But think about this. If the printing press wasn't really active until 1500, and wasn't even really established until 1475, then how did, these, how did these writings that we have, how did they become widely circulated beyond just going from, from everybody having to travel to a church to read the letter from the New Testament author? And this is where scribes come into play. Scribes would copy the text of Scripture by hand, letter by letter. You know how many ancient manuscripts we have of the New Testament? 25,000. 25,000 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. The earliest of the Gospel of John dates all the way back to 125. To 125. John was still living and writing Revelation in, in the 90s. So a period of 30-some years are the earliest manuscripts we've dated back to the Gospel of John. Why is this so important? 
Well, the runner-up in terms of ancient document manuscripts is Homer's Iliad. Remember, we have 25,000 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. We have 643 of Homer's Iliad. Homer's Iliad was originally written in 700 B.C., and the oldest copy found that we have wasn't until the 10th century A.D. Hundreds of years. John, a period of 30 years. Now, why does this matter? Well, two manuscripts from the 4th century A.D. don't include anything in Mark 16, past verse 8. The Greek vocabulary past verse 8 isn't really consistent with the rest of Mark. And the church father Jerome in the 4th century agreed that Mark ended at verse 8 as well. So now we have this problem. So why were verses 9 through 20 added? Why, why would it be added? Most likely it was because scribes felt the ending of Mark was too abrupt and needed a more complete ending. I mean, if Mark ends at verse 8, what we have is, and they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That is an abrupt ending to the resurrection. So most likely, the scribes felt it needed a more complete ending. Deuteronomy was written by Moses, but records of Moses' death are included in Deuteronomy. So he certainly couldn't have written that portion of the book. And most likely the scribes in their process of recording Mark were doing something similar here in adding just some clarity to the ending, the vast majority of which is proven from other scriptural accounts and other gospels to give Mark more information of the actions post-resurrection. Now, the King James Bible, the New King James, includes Mark 16, 9 through 20 in its versions because it was based on a medieval text, which included the ending. But since the time of the translation of the King James Version of the Bible, we found older manuscripts of Mark, which do not contain verses 9 through 20. Now, I'm not saying dogmatically that verses 9 through 20 were not written indeed by Mark. I wouldn't completely disregard it, but I wouldn't form any doctrines solely on it either because of these problems. But this leads us to another problem as well. Skeptics use this as a window to raise concern of how long it took the gospel writers to record their accounts of Jesus. Now, Mark's gospel was the earliest gospel of the four written. And it wasn't written until the 50s. So 20 to 30 years after Jesus ascended to heaven is when Mark's gospel was written. And skeptics argue, who could remember details of something for 20 years? I mean, who could remember details of something for 20 years? Can't touch this. Can't touch this. Can't touch this. Can't touch this. My, 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 my music hits me so hard. Makes me say, oh my Lord, thank you for blessing me. What am I to run and do hype? It feels good when you know you're down. A super dope homeboy from the Oak Town, and I'm known as such. And this is who is that? MC Hammer. You know how old that song is? 25 years old. 
But who can remember details from 20 years? MC Hammer. on a prayer from one of the greatest bands ever, Bon Jovi, 29 years old, 29 years old. But who can remember things that are 20 years old? people 1978 37 years and you're all still dancing to that at weddings 37 years old but maybe that's as long as we can go hmm i don't know Sixty-one. Fifty-four years ago. And we all know Elvis. We all know can't help falling in love. What's, what's the point? We can remember songs from anywhere from 25 to 54 years ago. We can remember who sang them. We can remember how they go. And skeptics look and they're like, oh no, Mark wasn't written for 20 some years after Jesus. Somebody was dead and they're alive. Are you kidding me? You're not going to forget that. That's not a problem at all. You think if maybe you saw somebody who died and then all of a sudden, three days later, they're up and walking around. They've still got scars on their body. You're going to remember that? I think so. You think you might remember that 20 years later? I think so. Here's what I want you to know. Do we know for sure that Mark 16, 9 through 20 were inspired by Mark? No, we don't. But we know with absolute certainty with absolute certainty that Jesus Christ died on a cross. He rose again. We have no doubts whatsoever of Mark's account of the resurrection. We have no doubts whatsoever of Matthew's account of the resurrection, of Luke's account of the resurrection, of John's account of the resurrection, of Peter's account of the resurrection. Oh, and Paul says, if that's not enough for you, head on back to Jerusalem. Because when he wrote 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, he said, oh, by the way, there's still 500 people, most of whom are still still alive, who saw Jesus. Jesus died, but he is alive. And here's what you need to know. It's for us. It's not just for us. It's for God's glory. But God in his love loved us so much that in spite of our sin, in spite of our rebellion, he still wants a relationship with us. 
the cost of my sin, the price of my sin is death. God said, no problem. So Jesus came. And he died on a cross for my mistakes, for my addictions, for my shortcomings, for my failures. And he did the same for you. Oh, but don't misunderstand. If it ends there, we're all damned. There's no hope. And we're wasting our time right now. But it doesn't. Three days later, a group of women go to a tomb. And it's empty. And that's our hope. The death it's been defeated. That sin no longer has a hold on us. That God is victorious. And we can be his children. That's our hope. And so maybe you're here today. And you've never made that decision. Right now, I'm just going to pray. And I'm just going to invite you right where you're at. If you've seen the evidence, if you've, if you've made the decision just to whisper this prayer up to God, there's nothing magical about the words, but just as a sign of surrender, of letting go, and really just giving yourself over to God for the very first time, and I'm going to pray right now, and right wherever you are, just whisper this back to God if it's something you haven't done, and you realize you are ready to give yourself over to God and say, God, I'm a sinner. I've fallen short. But I know you love me. So much so that you sent your son Jesus. And he died on the cross because of me. And three days later, he rose again. So God, take me. Make me a new person. I want to live for you. Here's my life. Amen. I want you to know if you prayed that this morning, if, if, you're, if you still got questions about this, we're going to sing a couple songs right now, and then I'm going to be out at the orange table right out there. And I would love to talk with you. I'd love to just hear your story. Answer any questions you may have. And for those of us who've already made that decision, I want to encourage you that as we stand and as we sing, just remember this. Our God is victorious. So let's sing it with all our hearts and with all our might. Because Jesus is alive and he wins.